Welcome, one and all, episode three of the Two Tongues Podcast. How's it going, man? It's going well, Kyle. How are you? I'm not bad. Ready to uh, get into this Murray Rothbard. Yes. So this was interesting. Um, This was a... So... This is your idea as far as a podcast topic, and I'm really happy you brought it up. I didn't, I didn't know who Murray Rothbard is, mm-hmm. so I'm excited to get into this a little bit. But before we do, I had this, I had this epiphany uh, the other day, and I thought it was funny. I wanted to share it with you. All right. All right, so, um, so growing up, I, I liked all those um, adult cartoons, starting with The Simpsons when I was a kid. Um, you know, going into Family Guy and today, you know, Rick and Morty and some of those things. Absolutely. Just, I just enjoy them. And, uh, I've, listened, I've watched a lot of Family Guy over the years, of course. Oh yeah. Um, but lately I've been getting into older shows, um, because, you know, um, I'm accustomed to like wanting to binge watch shows now. So, uh, I'm on Netflix or Hulu or something looking for something I haven't seen before that maybe I can watch a bunch of episodes of, like a, like a lot of people. And lately it's been Cheers. Okay. So I've been watching Cheers, um, partly because I really like Ted Danson from some of the newer stuff that he's done, mm-hmm. and uh, so I went back, started watching Cheers, and I, and I and I'm sitting there, I'm watching Cheers, and do you remember Cheers? Did you watch it at all? Um, I mean, I've seen a few episodes of Cheers here and there, I, quite a few of them, but I've never like really done a deep right. dive into Cheers. Right. Well, I mean, I, I knew Ted Danson was in it, and then I knew Woody Harrelson was in it, and I thought mm-hmm. it had it was on for a long time. It had to be worth a worth a watch. So I'm watching it, and then I, you start to learn the characters. Yeah. And the show, you know, Frasier was on that show, and then he had a spinoff that was really popular. So I'm watching this, I and... Love the Fra- I love Frasier. Oh, yeah. That show is great. Frasier's way better in Frasier than in Cheers. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, um, like the main guys, um, and there's like the female characters, but the main guys are Sam the bartender. Okay. Um, uh, Cliff, who's a postman. I remember Cliff. And Norm. And Norm's the heavyset fella. Mm-hmm. He's always just sitting at the end of the bar drinking a beer. And um, so here's what I here's what I was thinking. I'm watching this and I keep thinking of Family Guy. I'm like wondering why am I watching Cheers? I keep getting reminded of Family Guy. Um, so this is what it is. This is what I what I came to. Norm kind of looks like Peter Griffin. Okay. And so I, every time Norm shows up, he's at oh, the bar. Yeah, he's drinking a beer like like Peter at the clam. Mm-hmm. And I'm always thinking um, that's what's reminding me of it. So I mentioned that to to Jess. I mentioned that to my wife, and she and she kind of brushes it off a little bit. And I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. Peter Griffin looks like Norm. He talks like Cliff. He's the only he's the only one in the group that talks with the Boston accent. So so Peter Griffin looks like Norm, talks like Cliff, and he's really dumb. You know, like yeah. like Coach. And after Coach's character left, Woody Harrelson came in and filled the same spot. He's mm-hmm. like a dumb as a box of hammers. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm thinking when this show aired. Um, uh, Seth MacFarlane, he probably watched it quite a bit. And even if he didn't, it was probably on TV. There, was, there wasn't as many shows back then. Yeah. He, he must have been influenced by this. Sure. Um, and, and so I, I said that to Jess and she says to me, uh, well, what about, um, what about Cleveland? You know, they got the, or, 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 Joe, or Joe, they got these other friends. How do you make sense of that? And then all of a sudden she says to me, Cleveland is a postman with a mustache. Oh yeah. And so is Cliff. So we had this, we had this moment where we were where we were and I don't know if I'd call it a conspiracy theory moment, but we were putting all these little pieces together. And so anyway, I'm convinced that uh, Seth MacFarlane based Family Guy off Cheers. That's all right. it. All right, that's, that's my opening a story. Solid theory. I think that uh, we might have to develop a, another podcast entirely to that theory. Yep. Not an episode either. Like another like an entire series. podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the future. 
so uh, yeah, I mean, uh, all that aside, I was surprised to hear that you hadn't heard of uh, Murray Rothbard too. Um, you know, you said the name sounds familiar, but you know, he, I mean, I've heard him called Mr. Libertarian. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he stuttered under Ludwig von Mises, uh, and you know, the Austrian school of economics. So, uh, yep. you know, that's, that's the type of thing that, you know, the area of study that he comes from. Um, so we're going over this book, The Anatomy of the State. I mean, I, I wouldn't even call it a book, really. It's what, probably like an essay or yeah, something? Yeah, that's what I would have I called it. Yeah. Um, and I, so I was definitely interested in hearing um, why you wanted to talk about this in particular. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I went through it, and I really enjoyed it. And I got mm-hmm. a lot of things that I think are probably worth talking about. But I wonder what you specifically uh, liked about it or, or wanted to, you know, the reason why you really wanted to tackle it. Uh, I think it's just a good primer for you know thinking about existing without you know moving towards cutting back state power you know what i mean um it just kind of lays it out there that the state can't exist without its power moving forward you know there's no cutting it back really yeah i agree with that let let me stop for you for one second because um, in that piece, uh, the author, uh, Murray Rothbard, he uses the state, the word state, in two different ways. Mm-hmm. So I want to I make that clear for the people who are listening so this isn't confusing. So he does talk about the state in the way we would in the United States, like uh, the state of Ohio or the state of Texas. Um, but he also uses the state most of the time to just talk about a centralized government. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one that – well, there's other, other parts of the definition, but he uses it in two ways. In one way, just talking about like state with a capital S, the, the government. And then he talks about s- states the, in, this, in the normal way we would in the U.S. Sure. Um, so, it's, so it's not confusing. Um, you know, so he kind of breaks the book up into these um, – I, I mean, if it was a book, I would call it chapters. But like I said, it's more of an essay. He's The first one, it says, what the state is not. And, uh, you know, in this little section here, I feel like the main point that he's trying to get across to you, and this is something that uh, I believe it was you said in an earlier episode about how the government is just us, the government is just people. Yes. But in some sense, it's not, too. You know, when somebody says, we bombed people in Syria, Mm. you know, I didn't bomb enough people in Syria. Um, I'm not making those decisions. Um, So I... I think that was kind of the the main thrust of that first part is there is some kind of separation between us and the government. So, so that so that is exactly the point that struck me when I listened to that first piece um, is exactly that. In fact, one of, one of my notes, uh, you know, that I wrote down was that he says that people um, sort of assume that when they use the word state when they're talking about the government that 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 means uh, society, that, that that's mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. And when he said that's, that's not the case, and people just always kind of brush over that, uh, I, had, I stopped and I started thinking about that, and I really had never done that before. So he kind of put me in my place in a way kind of right off, right off the beginning that uh, I thought was really interesting. Is like, is it possible to have an organization of people who cooperate and live together, um, but do it without a central authority, a government. And uh, yes, of course that's possible. But because it's only done that way in the Western world, uh, it was like it never occurred to me that that society and the state aren't aren't synonyms. They're not words for the same thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, yeah. The delineation between um, the society and the state is definitely, um, you know, he says with the rise of democracy that it makes it even more entangled. You know, right. like um, you know before. Yeah, I mean, I've got this in my notes somewhere here too. They say that before war used to be like a clash of nobility and you know some hired mm. soldiers. You know, it's it, it's not like the nation was in arms against someone. See that that also struck. So you're pointing out a lot of the same things that that seemed important to me. And he said, I think two or three times that the only way um, the only way the state um, or or government can do war with another is by convincing the people to fight for the government. Yeah. So the the best way of doing that is to convince us that we are the same as the government. Yeah. But uh, I never had a senator over at my dinner table. No, absolutely um, not. I, I never went to a movie with a congressman. Uh, I never had a conversation with one. Yep. Um, so, you know, like I said, that I feel like was kind of the, the thrust of that main one. Um, you know, uh, I've got this long quote here. Um, Briefly, the state is the organization and society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force mm. and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization and society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment of services rendered, but by coercion. That is, by the use and the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. That's, that, that's, that's really, really good. And, and my note that I wrote down to that point was... Uh, talking about the conflict between um, uh, competing for resources between the private sector, um, you know, the government and the, or the, the private sector and the government, I should say. Yeah. Um, so that, that there's, it's like a zero sum scenario in most people's minds. Um, but, but we don't all, we don't often think about it that way, that if there's only a limited amount of resources and the government's using some of that to do what the government does, that's money that might, that might be used in some other way doing a million other things, but yeah. it's not. Yeah, yeah, and that that wasn't any of our choices. That it was, you know, like you said, a, 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 a coercion. Absolutely, uh, and that kind of leads into the next section of it, which is what the state is. And uh, he kind of starts this by talking about how man is born naked and afraid, needing to mix labor and natural resources to create to create goods and exchange those goods. Um, the exchange of those goods has boosted quality of life through over the hi over the course of history oh, enormously yeah. and it's still doing that today yeah um and so he he goes on to point that out and that there are two ways two means to to get wealth one of them is the economic means which mm -hmm. is that process that we were just talking about and Production, the other right? is the political means right which is taxation i mean coercion basically so i'm, I'm going to say that again for, for the audience so there's two ways that somebody can get wealthy by by producing something by providing a good or a service that somebody wants to buy and and, and making money that way um, or the the political route which is to simply tax or to take money from somebody else and i'll emphasize because murray would um in, in a way that's not voluntary that we're compelled to do it yeah um yeah, I mean, uh, one of the quotes that I've got here is, uh, through this path, men have learned how to avoid the jungle methods of fighting over scarce resources so that A can only acquire at the expense of B, mm. and instead to multiply those resources enormously in peaceful and harmonious production and exchange. Yes. So and he emphasizes that a lot, so I, I think we should probably talk about that. Um, one of the things... so. 
we talked about communism before, and this is sort of like the other side of the Murray Rothbard coin. So uh, I want to talk about production and exchange for a second, because in a communist sort of, um, or even a socialist sort of frame of mind, um, the um, pe people are only, um, in, we're selfish. We're all selfish. We're only going to do what we need for ourselves um, and no more. There's no incentive for us to produce anything extra um, unless there's an incentive, yeah, unless the market exists. So he, the way he framed that was that, that production and exchange creates the incentive for people to create more, to produce more than what they need for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that creates wealth. That creates more food for everybody, more clothes for everybody, more technology for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that if we didn't have that free market, if we didn't have that ability to produce and exchange, that, that we would really be selfish. There wouldn't be an incentive for us to do that. And what happened in the Soviet Union? You know, people starved. People had, you know, people have said that what brought down the Soviet Union was things like rock and roll, uh, yeah. getting past the Iron Curtain and, and Levi's blue jeans. Mm -hmm. Like those were the things that so people, Western culture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's a that's a point that um, one of my favorite people is Thaddeus Russell, one of my favorite online people. Yep. He he makes that point, um, you know, about the the downfall of Russia based on Western culture. I I just always thought that's really interesting. Um, oh yeah, you know, I, I guess that's kind of what they're hoping for in uh, North Korea too. But I don't know how well that's working. Yeah, they. Uh yeah, they, they, they crack down on, on internet uh, security there. They, you can only there's only six websites in North Korea. <laughs> Seven of them belong to the government. Um, so the next section that goes on, and this is kind of what I think to be the most interesting part of this, uh, how the state preserves itself. Um, and I think that basically what this section is is a bunch of propaganda mind tricks mm. to get people to be of the opinion that the state is completely necessary or they're just the people who are in the state are just way better than us right you know so before I want you to jump into that but before you do I want to sort of set that up um, so so when we start talking about when Murray starts talking about the things that uh, that the government does to convince us that they're necessary the reason he's talking about that at all is because he's basically saying that uh, that the federal government or the the establishment, you might say, that those people are lifelong uh, bureaucrats that that live sort of off the teat of the citizens of the mm -hmm. of the much poorer people than them. Yeah. Um, that that there's only a kind of a handful of them, and he he makes it sound like the the people like that, the career politicians in the federal federal government, that they're like the nobility in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. and they're like the aristocracy. And, and they are. I mean, think about that. Think about, like, Robin Hood and uh, the, the sheriff uh, in, in, that, in that story. Um, th that character is very much like a, a, career, a career politician, like a Nancy Pelosi or a sure, Chuck Schumer or something. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so he goes on here to start talking about... Uh, you know, the force is the modus operandi of the state. That's how they, you know, they kind of, they hold the monopoly on force and violence. Uh, but for something like this, it's, you're, you're going to have to do some ideological work. You can't, you can't rule over a nation of people without kind of 
you know, convincing them that it has to be that oh, way. Absolutely. Any, uh, anybody with a two or a three year old should understand that. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, that used to be done through religion a long time ago. Oh yeah. You know? uh, that oh, yeah. was a good way. The, the priest class, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of handled that for, for the ruling people. Um, but you know, the King can't manage everything himself. So like, you know, like you were talking about, they have to create this class of you know, like a bureaucrat class, basically mm -hmm. these people who are dependent on the government, um, you know, and so that's one method of, uh, gaining those type of supporters. Another would be the, uh, the granting of privileges and, uh, oh, yeah. subsidies and things like that. Oh, so yeah. these people are not really government officials, you know, like I think of like farm subsidies, they're not government officials, but they are kind of on the government you know, like pay, pay, oh, you know, yeah. what I'm, you know what I'm trying right. to say. They're on the payroll. And isn't, isn't it funny how something like that, like, like a tax perk can just be invented yeah. and then it can be used as leverage. And it reminds me of like, um, um, like you remember learning about in the middle ages, how the Catholic church would sell, uh, what do they call those indulgences? indulgences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so they just invented this thing that says make believe thing that, that doesn't exist that gives you a free pass to sin and all you have to do is pay the church and you can get away with whatever it is you want to get away with. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, absolutely. It is very similar to that. Um, so he starts talking about how for that ideological change to happen, that kind of, uh, you know, you need help with that uh, and that becomes the responsibility of the intellectuals in society. Exactly. And I, I just can't help but think about, you know, like the talking heads on TV these famous, you know, celebrity, um, celebrity pundits, celebrity um, politicians, oh, especially. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, it's a one of the quotes here is for the masses of men do not create their own ideas or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals, um, mm. you know. So do you remember how last week when we were talking about Young, there was all those quotes talking about how the totalitarian state was basically going to whittle away at our individuality and whittle away at our sense of like personal identity in order to make us more dependent on the government? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what that sounds like to me. It's, it sounds like a, like a propaganda system that goes all the way back to like turn-of-the-century psychology. Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. And it's effective. Yeah, it does. I mean, it definitely... Seems like it's working like a charm. Um, so the state needs opinion molders. Mm. It's uh, not apparent. It's not, you know, obviously apparent why the intellectuals need the state. But, I mean, you know, as we were talking about before, the masses of people are not really interested in intellectual things. So right. these intellectuals, they find a place where they can find, you know, um, some kind of stable living doing, you know, mm. Propaganda for the state, basically. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, court historians, you know, mm. I, I mean, that's one of my, I'm sure we're going to have to do an episode on that type of a thing eventually. Just um, history and how much stuff that I think is probably not the way that they yeah. told us it happened, you know? Yeah, that that, that might be a two, three, four parter yeah, if we yeah. really get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, I don't want to stop your momentum, oh, no, but good, I did man. want to ask a question because, um, 
because this uh, Murray Rothbard talks a lot about the government as a parasite, and like mm-hmm. the way that you and I were talking about how um, how you, there's the political means to wealth. So you get these people who somehow find themselves in this situation where they can leech money, they can leech a little bit of money out of a lot of people to make a small group of elites very wealthy. And if that happens, they have an interest in defending that because why would you want to have to go back to work if you can just be wealthy doing nothing? Yeah. Uh, I say doing nothing. I guess that's not exactly fair, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So he, he said things like uh, the state punishes theft but then taxes us to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, they're stealing from us. Yep. That the state punishes violence and then turns around and puts us in jail and executes us yep. you know, for, for, for doing violence. So you have this weird thing where the government's not held to the same standards um, as the people, even though they're supposed to be the people. And this is my question. That type of thing um, reminded me of I don't I don't have a lot of like uh, political philosophy in my in my wheelhouse. I haven't really done a lot of the reading that maybe I should have. But one of the things I remember is Thomas Hobbes' mm-hmm. Leviathan. Yeah, and really all I all I remember from that was the what was what was described the the Leviathan is that people in a society are agreeing that they're going to give up some of their rights their natural rights is what mm-hmm. was what he he would explain in order to uh, in exchange be able to live in peace and have the protection of of the government and whatever the government whatever benefits the government produces that they're trading certain freedoms for that benefit sure um so so what what I wondered is do we well f- before I ask the question um when he talks about natural rights he says he says things like I'm paraphrasing but he says things like if you have the power um to do whatever it is you want and that maybe that's something like stealing murdering raping whatever whatever terrible thing you can imagine if you have the ability to do it and physically you can get away with it that you have every right to do it that whatever you can do, you can do, in a sure. sense. And f- and for you to say, I'm not going to do those things, I'm going to follow the law, I'm going to not do those things, um, that what you're doing is um, voluntarily forfeiting those rights, the rights to do any manner of evil thing that, that your power will allow you to get away with um, in exchange for the protections of the government, being able to live peacefully and cooperatively with people. So my question is, do you think, do you think that we... Do you think that we do that, that individuals voluntarily give up their natural rights in, in exchange for the state to take care of us? Something like that. Um, I don't think that most people really think about what they're doing. You know, I don't think that it's like a conscious thing. Yep. Um, but yeah, basically, yeah, I do. So if if we do that, is it fair to call it a parasitic relationship or is it more like we invited it? I mean, I mean, you know what I'm, you know what I'm trying oh, to get Oh, 100%, at? yeah. Uh, it's like inviting a vampire into your house. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people, like I said, they don't really think about their relationship to the state. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I, what, the majority of the country doesn't even vote, you know? Like the... Right. So... And, like, by a lot, too, I think. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I think that people just don't really care. They just don't think about it, you know? Yeah, well, they got they got other things to occupy their thoughts. They're, that's the last thing on their mind for most people. They yeah. Got, they got their own problems. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so back to uh, this stuff. I mean, like I said, this is all basically just little little subtle tricks to. Yeah, make, let's, let's get into that. Let's 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 hear it. Make these people believe, you know, identify with the state. Like this is another one. Identify the state with the land. People, you know, people feel connected yes. to their homes. Yes, but the state is not your home. You know, it's a. Yes, it, it's a, a separated thing. Um, it's, it's and this is what we were talking about earlier: convincing the populace that an attack is not attack on the people, uh, that it is an attack on the people, not just the ruling caste. Right, yeah. right. So if so, if an army is threatening the rule of the ruling class, that their that their uh, modus operandi is to is to convince the the peasants, for lack of a better word, that the attack is on them, so that they can convince them to go fight on their behalf. Yeah. Otherwise, you just have like you know one duke uh, fighting another duke in like hand to hand combat or with swords or something, and then you know, but they no, they don't want to do that. Yeah. They're not risking their own life. They're going to risk hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of their of their subjects. Yeah, and uh, one of the later parts, and I mean, it's you know, I probably shouldn't skip ahead, but the, the like I said, this was the main part for me. The uh, so, he, he, but he references, um, you know, treaties and how nations interact with each other, mm-hmm. um, and they're talking about war and that, and it, you know, they're talking about how war used to be s- small affairs between, like you, you know, a duke and uh, you know maybe a, a small army, right? Um, but you know, Napoleon is kind of where it became a nation in arms, uh, like that kind of a thing. Yep, and that, uh, you know, I just. Can't help but think about how brutal that is, you know. Yeah. Conscription and uh, I mean that they talk about that a little bit in here too, like uh, yeah, you know. Um, well, we'll get well, to that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, and, I, and you can stop me if we're skipping too no, far ahead here, good. but um, but that's that's interesting. So when we're talking about the leader, the leadership of the state, the government, for lack of a better word, getting the people to do their fighting for them, um, or defending defending them for them, um, that. Uh, Oh, where was I going with this? Ah, I'll, it'll, I'll come back to it. The the thread it will come back. Um, so uh, the next thing that I have written in here is tradition, and that is definitely, you know, a big uh, something that gets people stuck in the idea of state power as well. Is you know the this is just the way that it's always been. You know, mm. the, we've been. I mean, we've been a country for over two hundred years. Um, you know, governments have been around a lot longer than that. It's never nothing. Nothing that big is ever going to change. Mm. Um, and that's true. I mean, that's definitely that's definitely something that gets oh, yeah. people hung up. Um, well, you know what? You know what came to my mind when you were talking about um, um, the, the government getting you to identify, getting the people to identify with the government that that that's who they are. Yeah. Um, when I when I was like eighteen, when I graduated high school. And my buddy Brian, you know Brian, mm-hmm. uh, he wanted to join the Marine Corps, yep. and I remember, and I didn't obviously. And this was this was like not, like right after nine eleven. It was a dangerous time, um, and uh, there was no way I would have ever made a physical fitness exam to get in the in military. But we were having this conversation, and um, and and I remember thinking, feeling actually that patriotic pride, you know, and 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 it's like all of the danger and all of that stuff. It was like diminished in comparison to the pride and the honor that I felt that I could represent my country, that I could fight for, you know, my compatriots. There's this weird thing, and it's like you, you swell up with pride and good feelings because yeah. of it. So it's like there's something in our psych, psych, psyche, for lack of a better word, that that responds to that. 
and I don't know what that is or if we're going to get into that necessarily, but what I do know is that the government plays on that. Yeah, 100%. They manipulate, you know, and I, again, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it comes from staying the Pledge of Allegiance every day from elementary school, you know, all mm-hmm. the way, all the way through or something. Maybe it's an indoctrination thing. Maybe not. I think it has something to do with your home too, you know, like that's the, that's the thing that maybe really gets its hook into you is mm. that you associate, you know, the activities of the state with this patch of land that where you've spent your entire life, right. you know. And I do feel pride about that. Yeah. You know, it's like a team mentality, some, yeah, something like there's that. There's a lot of like postmodern type people who um, might think that that's stupid, like ident- like feeling pride in where you're from. Right. Um, but I do. I can't help it. What do you think that is? I mean, because what comes to my mind is it somehow makes me different from somebody from Alabama, let's say, mm-hmm. because I'm from Ohio. Yeah. And in Ohio, we have certain things and we live a certain way and we have a certain accent and we have certain fast food chains. And sure. When I go to Alabama, that's all different. And it somehow becomes an, an us, them thing. Yeah. And I don't know what that is either necessarily, but that seems like just like the patriotism thing. It seems like built into our psychology, this whole team mentality. Mm-hmm. And and what is it about that, that? That natural, it's natural. And somehow I feel an identity with and a pride over where I come from because I think of it as different from where somebody else is from in some meaningful way yeah. that I can't articulate to you right now. It makes me think of uh, what we were talking about. I think maybe it was last week. Um you know, good forms of collectivism, you know, right. Yep. I think there's some kind of like a natural collectivism of being from the same place as someone, mm. you know? So that you hit the nail on the head there, I think. And I could talk about this forever. So I'm probably not going to do that today, <laughs> but I do think that there's a feeling that, that is associated with, with, um, feeling like you are, um, one with something, something or someone else. So you might have that feeling with a friendship you might have that feeling with a, like a, like a spouse or something, uh, but you can also have that feeling like like your brother, let's say, with uh, you know a college football team or sure. or with a, a country. Yep. That there's something really strange about that where when you when you can like somehow separate the sense of yourself and make it bigger and you and you kind of c- consider yourself to be part of you know uh, a team or part of a nation that there is something about that 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 ego kind of goes away and something about that we we respond to we we really like it yeah i don't i don't know what that is but we do we it's un, undeniable 100% yeah i that is interesting i would like to know more about that um but you know getting back to this here th- this is the part where I think it's it definitely the the next like two points here are particularly relevant for recent times. Uh, so th- this one's a quote. It says, "The greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. There is no better way to stifle that criticism than to attack any isolated voice, any raisers of new doubts, as profane violators of the wisdom of his ancestors." Mm. Um, you know, he starts losing me a little bit with the relevancy, with the wisdom of the ancestors right. thing. I don't think a lot of these people who are criticizing things today give a shit about the wisdom of the their right. ancestors. Well, I think he's just talking about a, a tradition. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so, but that, I mean, that's like, that's like right out of what's going on today. Anybody who speaks out with a little bit of a different opinion, it's just oh, yeah. uh, you're at public enemy number one. Yeah, and the way that Murray describes that is he says... 
anybody who has a uh, opinion that's outside of you know the the uh, orthodox, let's say, that that is a threat to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And what he means by that is that it gives people something to uh, g- to grasp a hold of that will cause them to question things like you just said, how things have always been done. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is just a slippery slope. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump from questioning authority, questioning the government. So we're going we're gonna to quash any kind of individual thinking, any kind of novel thinking, so that we can be sure that nobody ever questions us. Yep. And come on, man, how in the world can that possibly be good for society or for the people to, to, to never have any new ideas and to not innovate you know, yeah. and that that's something that that liberals have always uh, have always kind of that's the role of a liberal is to bring new ideas to the table to push back against authority. Um, that's what we need them for, you know. Uh, and that's and they're not doing that anymore. And yeah. that is that is so scary, man. It's like if we're going to die on the vine, if 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 you know, when this continues. Yeah, what you're talking about there, kind of makes me think of you know the no new ideas and stuff like that have you heard of the intellectual property theft that happens in like china and stuff like that some i mean i've, I've heard things like um that they reverse engineer technology and sell it that they have stores there and again this is this could just could not be true at all this i'm just telling you kind of what i heard yeah that they have stores there that are like designed to look like apple stores and mm-hmm. selling products but they're not apple products and they're not apple stores things like that yeah um that's and, basically what i've heard too yeah and then there was there was the thing with uh with um huawei with, yeah. the, with the cell phones and the government and the and the fears that the chinese government was somehow stealing technology or whatever. So those are the kind of things that I remember. Well, it goes way deeper than that, apparently. Um, From what I understand, China and Russia, you know, the Soviet Union back in the day, too, were all about having spies here. I mean, I'm sure you know that. Oh, yeah. And uh, basically, from what I understand, they got pretty much all of the information that they could have wanted, Mm. uh, basically, but just by paying people off. Um, But, like, the, uh, the Chinese lunar module or what you know some space thing i don't i don't fucking know but some kind of space thing it's it's the american version just with chinese letters on it you Mm. know they they got the they got the plans and it's it's ours um but i think that that definitely hurts people though because like you're talking about um how can that be good for society if you're just like you're not developing anything yourself you're just like ripping everything off you know yeah um well eventually eventually that will come to an end and when it does then what yeah yeah i just think that's interesting um but yeah the next note that i have is exactly what you were just talking about is derive deride individuality and encourage collectivism because dissent must start as individuals and the minority Mm. um you know right um, you you gotta you gotta squash down what what the minority's saying, which and, which we're seeing on the news yeah, every single day. Yep. Yeah, one hundred percent. Now, but you know what? Before we go any further, I want to mm-hmm. point out this this was written in nineteen seventy four. So the stuff we're talking about now and how we're kind of seeing how it's applying and how we can see the kind of the writing on the wall. Just bear in mind this was this was far enough ago that we're talking about some pretty prophetic stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and this is another one that's like prophetic. Uh, must gin up distrust of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy yes. theories can make populists doubt states ideological propaganda. Yes, that was I wrote that down too. I was I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Because he says he basically says that when you attack conspiracy theorists that you make 
um, them and everybody who who was witnessing it um, worried that they're gullible, that that they're getting something pulled over on them, and mm-hmm. nobody likes that. We want to, we you know, that makes us feel terrible. Nobody wants to feel like an idiot. So so making making people seem gullible. Um, by even considering something like a, I say conspiracy theory, but what I really mean here is any sort of alternative explanation or anything. Yeah. yeah. That that using that strategy is so effective. And look at what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, anybody who who speaks out of line about anything is is you know racist, a Nazi. Yeah. You know. Did you hear about Gina Carano? Oh man, I couldn't believe that. Yeah. I could not believe and that. And what I mean. You know, a, a ton of other people have talked about this and made the exact same point, but whatever. What she said was not bad at all. Like, it's because, I don't know, because she said the word Jew and Nazi? Like, yeah. I just don't know. And she's conservative. Yeah, I was pretty fired up about that when I read it, but then I immediately thought to myself, I'm only seeing, like, three sentences here. I don't know how much was actually said. Yeah. But for those people who don't know, uh, Gina Carano is, um, star- stars the female lead in The Mandalorian, wildly popular show on Disney+. Plus. Um, I enjoyed it. I did. I've never watched it. Oh well, it's worth it's worth the watch. Yeah, I didn't know Gina Carano was in it. Oh yeah, she's a she's a beast of a, of a, of a lady. Um, but in any case, uh, so she make she makes a, a remark. Uh, I think it was through social media, maybe uh, publicly, um, and it, it it is in no way racist. Um, Basically, what she says is that, you know, you look back at Nazi Germany and people imagine that like boom. The, the Holocaust happens, but no, it it was a slow buildup of like yes. demonizing people and making them being thought of as other. Yes. And she said that she sees a comparison of that going on with like conservative-minded people here, you know. Yes, which is really not that controversial at all. No, 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 no. And 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 the and the folks at Disney fired her, yeah. um, so they let go the lead and a wildly popular and profitable series. Which who knows if it will continue, but certainly won't continue with, without her. That uh, that that she was let go because she said something that was that was that was racist. Yeah. She she did not. She she was talking about the plight of the Jews entering Nazi Germany and what happened to them and how it relates to what's going on today. Yeah. That's it. Um, I did not realize she was the lead in that. I, I had no idea. I've never, never well, seen an episode. So the lead, the lead is a man in a, in a mask who you never see his face. The, the actual Mandalorian, but he's with her. So she, so she's the the female lead. He's the male lead kind Got of thing. It. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, so back to this. There's only, there's only two more points in this, but I, I really think it's interesting that all of the stuff that we've gone over has been stuff that is obviously real you know phenomenon that you see pretty much anytime you talk to somebody about the state at least i feel that's that to be true are are you going to talk about the inducing guilt yeah that's oh good that's that's coming up right now go ahead go ahead yep um inducing guilt is definitely a great way uh you know in the ways that any increase in private well-being can be attacked as unconscionable greed materialism or excessive affluence profit making can be attacked as exploitation and usury Yes. Mutually beneficial exchange, mutually beneficial exchange is denounced as selfishness, uh, and always the conclusion being drawn that the siphoning of more resources for the private from the private to the public sector. Um, so, what do you what do you think that means t- in your words? Um, I think it means that they're using people's 
you know, like the compassion of certain people um, mm-hmm. for people who have less than them, basically. I mean, it's causing these people who it's like, yes, I want I want people to not be hungry. So, yes, tax me. And they don't really yeah. think any more than that. Right. When in reality, there's probably a better way to do it for the poor people. And there's probably a more efficient way to do it for your the money that you're putting out, you know? Oh, yeah. So, so, so was, I, I read that and I thought to myself, you know, so what, you know, what he's saying is if the government, if the state can make you feel guilty, um, whether that, you know, for whatever reason. So I did write down those words, materialism, greed, exploitation, because mm-hmm. those are the kind of things that, uh, that he highlighted. But you, if you make the citizens feel guilty about something um, that's outside of their control, let's say, but it's uh, responsible for their well-being in some way, like, uh, you know, like. Like what they're doing, uh, you know, in modern history, making you feel guilty about being uh, a, a first world white man. Mm-hmm. Like that's the worst possible thing you can be because you've got all, it's all these privileges. That if I have to feel guilty about who I am, that that's going to keep me complacent and passive. That, I, that I'm going to carry that guilt uh, around and that, that I will allow more of my freedoms to go away. And I will allow more overstep on... on you know, uh, on onto me, yeah. Because I have, I'm harboring this guilt that the government has convinced me I should have. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that with this uh, white privilege thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I mean, it's more than that because it, it it extends to capitalism entirely. Sure. You know, we have a huge portion of the of the citizens in this country that think capitalism exploits people the working class and says nothing about all the wealth and great things that, that capitalism has brought to us uh, because they feel guilty. Again, these are usually well to do, mm-hmm. you know, college graduates, let's say that they feel guilty about that. Um, why, why should they feel guilty about that? Because it, it, as Murray would say, because that guilt is valuable for the government. Yep. 100%. Un- unbelievable. Yep. Uh, and they really, you know, like I said, I, all of these things in my mind, it's just very obviously actually being taken advantage yes. of. Yes. These are um, these are lines that they're pulling. Uh, so the last one in this section is um, about science. Yes. Talks about how people, uh, well, I'm talking about how people are so pro-science, you know. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself someone who is pro-science. Of course. You know, like, but... I just don't think, you know, people talk, people listen to the news and they say fake news and they think that that's a compelling thing. Well, just wait until you learn about fake news or, I mean, you know, fake history oh, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, fake science. Oh, I mean, yeah. Because it's real. I, you know, think about, uh, you know, like the smoking stuff. Oh, I was going to say that. Exactly. Do, you, do you remember Thank You for Smoking, the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, like... Just the idea that people don't think that the government is buying science is basically, you know. Oh yeah, uh, like like science is beyond reproach. Yeah. Like like, and that's another thing. Like um, some some people I know really well that that talk about this. You know, when they were, when especially or you know surrounding coronavirus and Fauci, let's say, talking about um, you know, I'll believe the experts. Let's follow the experts' opinion. And I a hundred percent agree. I don't know anybody who wouldn't. But with but to say that as though. Scientists are completely objective, that they're non-political, that they don't have an agenda, mm-hmm. and that they're never wrong. Yeah. That's that's the part that was so powerful to me. It's science has done nothing but change. 
since it, since it began, yeah. you know, since it was called uh, natural philosophy in the a- ancient times. Yep. It's done nothing but change. What science does is prove more and more what we were wrong about. 100%. So so when we say something like we're going to we're going to rely on these experts and assuming that that means that they're right is such a stupid th- assumption that that I can't believe it's taken seriously. Yeah. Science changes all the time because it's the study of what we're wrong about, not what we're right about. Yep. That's perfect. Uh, I completely agree. Another thing with science is um, even if, you know, a lot of these people, even if they don't really understand the science, they they have so much faith in science that they just don't question anything. And, uh, you know, mm. uh, and it extends into, I mean, you know, we got a virus going on right now where people say trust the science and uh, it, right. it's kind of maddening. But it goes to, um, it goes into different areas too. He has this note here about um, if, you know, you think about what what's the word I'm looking for? Stimulus. Yeah. Stimulus stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily for this COVID one, but in the past, it's been like, yeah, we're going to give you some cash mm-hmm. and you're going to go spend it and it's going to get things moving. You right. Know? Right. Um, he talks about how that would never, you know, if a robber robbed someone and was like, well, I'm going to spend it, you know. Um, but if you, right, you, did you, know, say that. if you right. dress that up in like these Keynesian this Keynesian jargon, you know, it makes people like, oh, yeah, you're not just taking money from me and giving it to other people. Right. You know, um, so I thought that was a, an interesting use of science as well. But uh, well, do, you, do you remember earlier when you were talking about the intellectuals, when you were saying that that the uh, the government sort of uses the intellectuals to um, create evidence for their or support for their correctness and their authority it's like we're going to get all the br- the brightest minds out there uh to to um communicate the things we, we want to be communicated so that people will uh people will come to kind of not question the government because the people who are advising the government they're the experts they're yeah. they're they're the smart people um and uh and and w- w- the note that i made was that that is intentional because again, people don't want to do the hard thing, and if it means they have to do a bunch of reading and researching, they would much rather just rely on an expert who already yeah. knows it. Yeah. But if 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 the government controls um, the public scientists, and I would say that probably ninety nine percent of those scientists, public or or not, are liberals anyway, because they come from the you know the the university system, mm-hmm. um, that that it basically promotes kind of blind reliance on the government because remember they're the ones with the intellectuals behind them they're the ones uh you know that they're they're the experts yeah and and that using that as a way to convince people who aren't willing to kind of read into it to figure out whether whether they're right uh sort of taking advantage of our laziness to make us agree with them all the time yeah yeah uh you know it's funny i actually can remember kind of feeling like that you know, and uh, you have an example. Um, no, not a specific example, really. But just I remember being younger and, uh, you know, I mean, I've been like a libertarian minded person for a long time since right. I was about late teens, basically. Yep. Um, but, you know, even back then, before I was uh, as far along as I am now, thinking that like, oh, you know, these people in government, they've got. They've got access to lots of information, and right. you know they're just experts. You know yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I can I, I have some sympathy for that because I do kind of remember feeling that way. Oh yeah. Well, you kind of want to feel that way. It's yeah. way more comforting to feel like there's people out there that know their shit, and you yeah. don't. You know. Well, I don't even think that that's 
not necessarily true. I'm sure that there are some people in the government who know what they're doing. Oh, of course, yeah. I just may not agree with what they're doing. Right. So, um, did you have a note? Uh, did you have a note in your notes where he said that the, that the government will will attack common sense? Uh, I don't think I have that written down anywhere. So he he said something like that 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 if we if if the state can get um, can get you know people to question sort of common sense uh, that 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 will cause them to question their own certainty. That if that that if I can if I'm in a situation where I'm and, and you know what comes to my mind is the transgender um, social uh, movements that we're seeing. You know, it's in, right now the hot button topic in the media, in that way, is to do with uh, transgendered um, students um, uh, in sports. Okay. So, is it fair to have a you know a, a, a man or a boy, let's say, in in, a, in girls' sports? Um, you know, and th- you know this is a conversation that's been had, and, and I'm sure it's going to continue to be had. But that's the kind of thing. It's like um, I would say uh, most people uh, would say something like um, it's 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 against common sense to put a boy in girl sports and expect that that's fair and that people are going to be okay with it um you know and there's all sorts of social reasons why I, people would disagree with me disagree with me on this but it's it's complete rubbish uh the the like i have two girls i have two young girls so i'm imagining myself with my two girls in sports and seeing them lose to boys, mm-hmm. um, transgender girls, I should say. I don't know even what the what the correct you know language is, um, but if that were to, if that were to happen, where my girls were not winning races, they weren't getting championship ribbons, and they weren't getting scholarships because they continue to lose to boys that are pretending to be girls on their sports teams. That is an attack on common sense that most people most people with a objective frame of reference are not going to say that's okay. It's not okay, for, and there's all sorts of reasons. If my girls di- didn't get a college scholarship because of that, I would be livid. Yeah. Now I, I'm okay with other all, other solutions to this, like you know, uh, people people students have students run races, and whoever's whoever's times are, are in a certain category, let them race together, whether they're boys or girls. Fine by me. Sure. But to put but to put boys in the same uh, sports as girls. Seeing them lose and letting that happen because we because we think it's somehow more fair, um, to me is a is a very clear attack on common sense. That when it started, you know, a few years ago, um, there were so many more people who would who would nod their head and agree with me. But today, there are fewer and fewer and fewer that p- people who think that this is a step in the right direction for equality and 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 you know some, some sort of social progress. And I see that as society being convinced against their better judgment against their common sense that this is something that's good yeah. and the more things like that happen the less certain people are about everything that they thought they knew yeah and then what happens to those people they're going to look to the government for what the right answer is they're yeah. going to look to the experts yeah yeah i thought that for a long time that uh one of the most important techniques for them is to just take everything you know and turn it upside down you know right. uh just chaos um just people looking for help basically right yeah so i, I completely agree with you all right what's uh, next kyle what do you got next uh the the next part uh i mean we kind of already touched on the last part which was how the nations relate to one another uh this is another interesting part though so we kind of, we'll kind of skip that last part but this is so this will kind of be the last part then and it's how it's 
how the state transcends its limits. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I thought this one was pretty interesting, too. Uh, and basically, this is just about how since there has been government and since there have, you know, have been people who are governed, there are people who have been looking for a way to limit that amount of power. Right. And since there have been limits, the governments have been finding ways to subvert those limitations right. and turn them into what he, what Murray calls a rubber stamp for their own validation. Yes. Um, you know, the, he talks about how, um, you know, the old rule of kings may rule only by divine law becomes anything the king, the king does is divinely approved. Mm. You know, that little, yes. Yes. that subtle switch there. And that goes back to the postmodernism, which I know you want to talk more about. Yeah, but one of these episodes. Because it's so important for them um, what the power that language has on sort of the way we, uh, the way that we sort of see our, our, our world. Yeah. That, that by changing the language a little bit, you know, it's enough to kind of go over people's heads. They don't notice it, but it has such big implications. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, one, I know one of your favorite thinkers is Jordan Peterson and me too. Yes, I mean, um, and he's kind of the anti postmodern guy. Yes. And the guy that I mentioned earlier, who was one of my favorite dudes is Thaddeus Russell. And yep. he's kind of the pro postmodern guy. So, uh, I'm sure that once we do do that episode, do do, <laughs> um, both of the, both of those guys are going to come up. Um, but back to this, uh, you know, and he, another thing that he mentions is how parliament was created as a check on monarchical power, mm. but now parliament is just like part, the part essential of part of the government. It's like the thing. Now. Yes. So, so when I read that and I wrote down, um, my note was, it's sort of like a virus, antivirus situation. So you've got the hackers on one side and the people trying to protect your computer on the other side. And as the technology continues to improve and the techniques get more sophisticated for how to hack into your computer and steal mm -hmm. your information, that that it's it's like this. This is how this is how the government's trying to increase their power, and the sort of protections that are in place to check their power are constantly at odds with one another. Like yeah. the federal government's constantly trying to work around the newest updates to their to the antivirus, yeah. trying to figure out how they can get more power, how they can get around these limitations all yeah. the time. Yeah, and they figured out a pretty good way to do it. Uh, he talks in here about our specific here in America land. Mm. Uh, our specific version of this is the Supreme the Supreme Court, right? Um, and he says that if the Supreme Court says that something is unconstitutional, that carries a lot of weight. But then the obvious, um, you know, the opposite of that would be that if they say something is constitutional, that that carries a lot of weight yes. too. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. So. You know that that's that that same thing. That's just their version of turning it into a rubber stamp. If they say that something's fine, well, then it's fine. Yep, exactly. And and the point he makes about that is, and I think he he says he uses the word umpire. He says <laughs> that the uh, he says that the federal courts, so the Supreme Court, that it's made it's made up of people who are elected and appointed by the legislative and executive government. So you've got the court system by and for the government making decisions about what's what's the government is allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So you basically have somebody on your team deciding w what you can and can't do. Wouldn't it be nice if we were all allowed to operate that it's, way? Yeah, it's just like just like how Congress can vote for their own raises. Yeah. What in the absolute fuck is that, Kyle? It's crazy. Um yeah, I mean, I I've got that somewhere down here too, the uh, you know, about voting for their own raises yes. and it just, you know, that 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 one really does kind of make it clear, you know, 
I, I'm kind of surprised they don't do it more often, but... Yeah, so why, why should the federal government, or excuse me, why, why, <coughs> should, why should the Supreme Court um, be, why should it not be completely independent from the government? It, it, that, that, to me, seems like the intention of the checks and balances of having different branches of government. Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand how it can be separate from government, but, um, I mean, the way that it is now, it's clearly not separate from government. I mean, it's appointed by the government, it's voted on by the government, so, um, but yeah, so, you know, he goes on here to kind of talk about how, uh, any limited government will do things that some individuals believe overstep those limitations. Um, you know, so, you know, like, uh, this is kind of where I had the notes about the draft and, you know, oh, yeah. if you think about like free speech yes. violations, price controls, the new deal gave the government just an unprecedented amount of economic control and the Supreme Court validated all of those things. I oh, mean, yeah. you know, there's no, nothing in the Constitution that says, says any of those things are possible, but right. the Supreme Court, no, it's fine right. now. So, so as the government, if I need the people to, to do my fighting for me and, they, and, and I can't convince them to do it, then I'm just going to have a draft and force them to do it. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Uh, another thing that I think is interesting here is how he talks about how if you've got two parties and one of the parties is interested in having a liberal construction of the Constitution mm. <coughs> where they give themselves way more power than, uh, than they should be able to, um, and you have the other party that has a conservative construction of mm -hmm. it and they want to limit things, well, the party that wants to limit things is always going to get beat out because – how can you beat somebody who is not limited by the same rules that you are? Ah, uh, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't have to operate within the Constitution, so mm. you're, you're going to lose. Wow. So you have enough people willing, to, willing to, to bypass those checks, and they immediately have a superpower over you because you're, because you're following the rules. Yeah, which, I mean, that's, that's all kind of laughable because I don't really view the Republican Party that way. No. I mean, but you know, no. theoretically, that's kind of kind of what they're supposed to be. Um, so yeah, basically, the you know the government can't determine its own power. If they do, they're going to make themselves all powerful. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. So that I mean, that's basically it. That's the 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 next part is talking. Oh no, what the state fears. I'm sorry, there is one more. Okay. Um, so I, I do have one point about, and you may be getting to this, but where he talks about social power. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. So if we, don't, if we don't get versus... to that, yeah, if we don't get to that, I have a point I want to make. But go ahead. All right. Um, what the state fears. Uh, any fundamental threat to its power or existence. Uh, the right. state can end in two ways, war or revolution. Mm -hmm. Both of these inspire maximum levels of propaganda from the state. Uh, in war, state power is pushed to its ultimate, and under the slogans of defense and emergency, it can impose a tyranny upon the public such as might be openly resisted in time of peace. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So, so you remember um, you remember when Obama was, uh, I think his first term, when he was um, recorded saying um, uh, that, that no, um, what did he say, no, no um, catastrophe should go, what did he say? What was the, what was the quote? Yeah, um, let no, no emergency go to waste. Go to or waste. Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. 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 Yeah. Using using fear uh, to get people to agree to something they wouldn't ordinarily do in their right mind. It's like it reminds me of like um, they tell people like uh, older people who who um, have a, a spouse that passes away. 
that you should never make any important financial decisions or any important decisions like in the first six months. Yeah. Because you're not, you know, you're not in your in your right mind. Yeah. And that's exactly what the government t- takes advantage of. And I'm thinking about things like 9/11 and the Patriot Act. I'm thinking about things like COVID-19 and wearing two stupid masks. <laughs> but <laughs> there you, you know. go. Um, so you know, war is the health of the state. Um, you know that. You know, I was watching that movie. Have you seen the movie War Dogs? No. It's, it's all right. It's uh, got that dude Miles Teller and uh, Jonah Hill's in it. Okay. And it, it's basically just about these guys who make money selling military equipment mm. to, to the United States military. Interesting. Rolling in dough, those guys. You oh, know? I bet. Yeah. So, you know, war kind of is the health of the state. Um, this is uh, kind of maybe the last kind of the last thing here. Uh, we may test the hypothesis that the state is largely interested in protecting itself rather than its subjects by asking which category of crime does the state pursue and punish most intensely, mm. those against private citizens or those against itself. And, uh, you know, you think about the, the types of crimes that are the biggest deals. You think about assault. What's a bigger deal, assaulting a private citizen or assaulting a police officer? Assaulting a police it's officer. It's a huge deal. Oh, yeah. Then, you you know, you think about things like treason, desertion of soldiers to the enemy, mm. failure to register for the draft, uh, assassin, assassination of rulers, yeah. counterfeiting money or counterfeiting money. taxes. Oh, failure my God. to pay taxes. Don't, exactly. Don't pay. Don't not pay those taxes. You know, those are the most important things to the state. So I just think that that, I mean, I know you said you had something that you wanted to talk about, but that's basically it for me is I just, the the reason I wanted to go over this is I just, you know, I I don't, I I have a problem with some labels like libertarian. I, uh, a lot of libertarians kind of annoy me, so I just don't want to hitch myself to that wagon. Uh, But one thing that I kind of consider myself is, like an anti-government extremist. Right. Uh, and I just want to promote these different ways of thinking about the state. That That's kind of why I wanted to go over this. So uh, so I think that leads into something that, that I wanted to mention. Um, so, he, so he did talk about um, he did, he did talk about how the states, like in our, in, our, in our country, that the states were designed to be a check against the power of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And then he said, if we believe that to be true, then the individuals should all have their own their own veto authority. Yeah. Like as individuals, yeah. I'm also a check against the st- against the power of the state and the power of the federal government. And then he said, the moment the moment that you follow that train of thought through to conclusion, if the states are supposed to be a check against the federal government's power, then you can't you can't avoid the idea that the individuals are supposed to be a check against that power as well. And as soon as you have that, as soon as that sentence comes out of your mouth, then you're not talking about a, uh, a type of government that you would call a state. Yeah. That you're talking, yeah, yeah. You're, t- you're inviting another type of government where the people have the, the, a check of power against, against the, the government, the governing authority. And what type of government that is, is something that doesn't really exist yet. It's, yeah. like, it's like an invitation to, some, to something new, some, some better form of government i like that it's positive it's uh i think we should try it (laughs) uh now i mean i think one of the things he says what is the final solution to the state problem um you know i don't think that we have the answer to that yet uh i would like to find it um i think one of the things that i lean towards is just like 
massive decentralization, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and that's kind of what you're talking about there. Uh, oh, um, yeah. You know, the most decentralized we can be as individuals. Right. So. So I think that is the final thought to plant in everybody's heads who's listening today. Let's think about that. Let's let's think about what the future holds uh, for this new and novel form of government that recognizes the individual, that... Um, uh, that um, does not have a different standard for how we treat um, society, the representatives of our society versus the individuals, uh, a country that's really by the people for the people, whatever that might be. Amen. All right, guys. God that, bless America. That's it for today. <laughs> uh, until we meet again um, next week. Thanks, yeah. guys.